0: The Inside Learning Podcast is brought to you by the Learnovate Centre. Learnovate's research explores the power of learning to unlock human potential. Find out more about Learnovate's research on the science of learning and the future of work at LearnovateCenter.org. Today's
1: guest is an industry revolutionary. He is responsible for coining the Courses to Resources Shift, introducing the effective context model in learning and creating the 5DI Approach to Human-Centered Learning Design. He has a three-decade track record of shaping future learning approaches for numerous public and private organizations. He is a winner of several awards for people development strategy, innovation, and learning content. He's a friend of Learnavate, and he is also the author of How People Learn. Welcome to Inside Learning, Nick Shackleton-Jones.
0: Thank you so much. That's brilliant what you just said. Sounds strikingly like something I might have written, so... Uh...
1: <laughs> AI wrote it for me man <laughs> yeah, I put it into the chat yeah. yeah. it, it said here's what Nick Jackal, Jackal and Jones would say It's <laughs> Spot on <laughs> You know and I have so many questions to ask you and I was going to follow the arc of the book and just given our little chat at the start of the show I thought actually you know what I'm going to take a leaf out of Nick's book literally And actually do what's salient to people. And one of the things that's on everybody's mind at the moment is artificial intelligence. But again, you make this hyper relevant for our audience. So for those of you listening who are L&D professionals, designing programs for organizations, chief learning officers, or just interested in the realm of learning and development, this show is for you. Nick, over to you to see what are you seeing out there? What's your advice to people in L&D? when they're buying those systems when they're implementing ai across their learning systems what is your what is your overview of what's going on
0: huh. more crap quicker i think um, my overview of what is going on is that we're repeating some of the horrible mistakes that we made at the turn of the century and i was you know part of frankly where we promised that applying technology to learning in the in the case of the uh, turn of the century e-learning e-learning was going to make learning so much more wonderful for everybody remember that you know, it was, you can learn at your own pace, you know, anywhere, any place, anytime. That was the mantra and actually was horrible. And it's because we hadn't really fundamentally understood learning. And what I learned through that experience is that new technology applied to old thinking is not progress. And so fundamentally it was because people didn't understand learning. That's why we went horribly wrong. What we'd thought was the, the thing we were doing is you we were taking all that content and we were kind of spitting it out at people more efficiently and that, that was going to kind of magically enhance learning, and it didn't. And in fact, if you ever read Jane Hart's learning in the workplace survey, e-learning has been consistently voted the poorest um, form of learning by kind of learners, and it's pretty much relegated to compliance now. But we're just about to do the same thing with AI, you know, horribly. So what I tend to talk about with AI is kind of good thinking and bad thinking with AI, and this is quite important to you uh, if you work in learning, because you'll either be working on a product which fundamentally, if you like, or trying to sell a product which fundamentally bad thinking, or you'll be potentially procuring a product which fundamentally will fail. And I can tell you it will, with great confidence it will fail in the same ways that those enormous libraries of e-learning content that we bought and were massively underutilized also failed. Um, or you could actually be doing something that's worthwhile and useful. So I'll try to explain the difference between the two. So content dumping is the the scourge of L&D. There's just uh, too much of it happening where effectively we take some kind of technology and use it to crunch content and either spit out automated lectures or modules, which sort of everybody hates and they just feel there's an additional burden on them. So that's what I'm seeing a lot of in AI. So if you're looking at an AI product or thinking about procuring it, is it just more content dumping? Is it just auto generating modules based on our whole bunch of stuff that you kind of push into it? because that will not succeed, it won't be successful. So what will be successful? Well, in a nutshell, there's two kinds of things you can do in learning. You can either put people through an experience and it's entirely unclear how AI is going to affect that. And that's good news for many of us who work in MD because if you're doing experience design, if you're getting people together in a room to do something meaningful, it's not clear that AI is gonna touch that. Um, Think about Disneyland. You know, as a comparison, how is AI going to affect Disneyland? It's not really, not obvious because what people are benefiting from is an experience. It's the experience that's transformative. It's the chance to practice something, do something, be challenged or stretched in some way. So probably we should work on that and AI won't touch that in the immediate future. Leaders getting together to practice leadership skills. That's where to go. Where will AI actually be useful? Performance support. I'll give you a really simple example. When people join organizations, I do a lot of analysis of, the, of the, this kind of audience. There's one thing that makes a huge difference, more than anything else, to their performance, their engagement, and that is having a buddy, somebody there to support them. But it's hard to resource that with human beings. So a digital buddy, a chatbot, somebody who is you know, not just a scripted thing, but somebody who can kind of interact naturally, understands a bit about the organization, could help you whenever you need help is always there, is always polite, that is demonstrably a good thing to do. Just give people some kind of, you know, supportive guidance, like, um, a good example would be sat nav in your car. Is that helpful? Yeah, super helpful. It's always there, tells you, you should do this, go left, turn right, turn, you know, left, go straight on. That is a super helpful device. So you can build sat nav for any kind of role, some kind of system performance guidance system. That's a really good application of AI but look at some of the stuff you're being offered in in conclusion. Is it a performance guidance system? Is it really? Or is it just more content dumping?
1: Well, it speaks to so much of the things that you say in the book and have to say you wrote this book well before we had such a focus on generative AI, machine learning, etc. So you 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 were going in the right direction and you talk in particular about salience of information. So is the information interesting to me? This speaks to what you call an effective context model. And that model itself offers an empirically grounded theory of learning, which is really important, but you simplify this as well. You break it down into very accessible language. So I'd love you to share that model, because if we take what you said as a kind of a frame through which to listen to this episode, your effective context model makes sense now in a world of AI. Yeah,
0: I, I hope so. The honest truth is, I'm going to be dead before people are really starting to engage seriously around um, effective context. Um, So, um, you know, many, many years ago, had you said to people, there's no such thing as as a soul, uh, they would have laughed in your face. They would say, well, it's a ridiculous proposition because, you know, otherwise, who's talking to you? Um, But now we understand that, you know, actually, uh, there is no such thing. It's a, or most of us perhaps understand that. It's part of what your body does, the the illusion. The effective context model I introduced because I realized at some point in my career, I started out as a psychology lecturer. I realized that we didn't understand learning. We had what was a kind of a protos, proto-science, a pre-science, like alchemy before chemistry. And as somebody who was teaching all of this, this little patchwork of theories, you've got behaviorists, you've got cognitive psychologists, you've got this piece of research over there, got a bit of evidence that says that, you know, Cold showers can help learning. a bit of evidence over here that say that citrus fruits help learning. A bit of neuroscience over there. And and we're washed with evidence, but we have no all-encompassing universal general theory of learning and cognition. So it was a grand ambition, but it was necessary because um, I realized that actually none of what we understood about learning was really um, hitting the mark, was really effective. Let me explain. So, when I left teaching psychology, I thought that I was going to change the world by applying all of this learning theory using technology um, to, you know, the task of actually improving learning, and I did. I, I joined a business and had a chance to do that. And at some point, I wanted to stand up. I guess, you know, it was hubris at some kind of conference and talk about, you know, how we'd engineered the kind of the perfect learning approach. Um, and what I did in pursuit of that was I tested these learning theories, Brunner's um, theory, for example, um, uh, Vygotsky, um, side by side. We had the same information about the solar system developed into five or six different formats with sort of rich multimedia, multimodal learning mm-hmm. at one end and just a plain text file at the other end. And we basically gave independent measures design, gave to students uh, the same period of time to work with that content. And guess what? Didn't make a damn bit of difference doesn't make a difference. I realized that if we were tinkering at the fringes, we hadn't really understood how learning works. That in fact, you can learn as all of us do from almost any format if we're sufficiently motivated. That's why we go on Google. I went on Google the other day, trying to find out how to turn the alarm off in my car because the dog was in the car. And the last thing I wanted was a video. I just wanted step-by-step instructions. So when you care, you will pull the information you need. But the sorts of things that make you care are challenges, are things that you know come along and sort of change you. So the effective context model, as you say, you say it was supported by lots of evidence. There's some nuance there, and perhaps you'll indulge me a bit as, as I kind of explain it. When Darwin introduced um, the theory of evolution, it was not supported by any evidence because you can only, strictly speaking, be supported by evidence when you put a theory to the test, when you've designed an experiment based on a hypothesis derived from that that theory, right? And it wasn't actually tested until decades later. So um, if that's the case, how does any new theory get introduced? Um, And the answer is explanatory power. So half of the, the power of a theory is its ability to predict and be tested, but the other half is that evolution was simply a better explanatory framework for all the stuff that we are seeing, including fossils and all of that sort of thing, um, and the uh, variety of species. So the effective context model has that explanatory power. You can scoop up, as I do in the book, um, decades of research, everything from people like Elizabeth Loftus to modern-day neuroscientists um, like Jack Panksepp or Damasio or Mary Helen Imedino Yang. You can look at behaviorism through to cognitive science. And it provides a unified general framework for understanding learning, but also for doing good things in learning and development, for making predictions about what's actually going to change people's performance. And the gist of it is, and I'm going to stop because I know I've been rabbiting on, is that you don't remember anything. You don't remember anything that happens in your life. What you do is you remember your emotional reactions to things. Those emotional reactions are very subtle as people like Daniel Kahneman and uh, Jonah Lira showed, and you use those to reconstruct your memory and your experience. And that has two profound implications, I guess, for learning, which is, on the one hand, you have to understand what matters to people. That's the user-centricity of it, because otherwise you've got zero confidence that they'll recall anything. If you know somebody cares about architecture, they will store and encode information they react to because they care about architecture. But the second big implication is if you want to change somebody, then you have to have some effective impact. You have to put them in a situation, design an experience, which will move them, literally, at an emotional level. So I'm not saying that emotion is important to learning. In the same way that I'm not saying that cognition is important to learning. Cognition is emotion. It's an effective process. You couldn't have learning without emotion. So, yeah, it's a radical claim, but, you know, I'm going to tread that path for a while, I guess. There's a
1: quote by Plutarch, and this is like a couple of hundred years BC. The mind is not a vessel to be filled, but a fire to be kindled. And yet we still today fill people's minds, kids' minds, adults' minds, L&D sessions, university, just with content, hoping that they'll inhale that content long enough to regurgitate it all over a page later on, and then we test them on that. And here's the challenge. I, I, I absolutely love what you're saying that when learning is infused with emotion, that's also important to us, or we, we can perceive that it's important to us, it will be almost like branded into memory forever. But think about the brave teacher. Like I often think about that scene from Dead Poets Society. Robin Williams standing up on the table and he's like, got everybody standing up and they're all singing from the same hymn sheet. Those teachers are the ones that are the change makers, but they're the ones that walk a thin line, are seen almost as outliers and it's a dangerous line to thread. And it's like, don't rock the boat, just do what you're supposed to do. So in there presents a huge challenge. It's a challenge of you're not hiring teachers for the old model of being able to just regurgitate the curriculum, but it becomes almost the teacher as a performer or the teacher as something entirely differently. And that rewiring of the entire system seems to be the challenge.
0: Yeah. But, you know, let's not, um, be too heroic about us. <laughs> it was too grand about our ambition. You know, when Galileo had the temerity to suggest that the earth orbited the sun, you know, he was shown the instruments of torture. Progress has never been easy, but I think it, it. possibly we run fewer risks these days. Yeah. So Robin Williams, spoiler alert, you know, lost his job. Um, but fundamentally, it's it's a really interesting analogy because if you rewatch that movie, everything that Robin Williams was trying to do um, was to craft an experience. He had people tearing. They're sometimes quite small, tearing a page out of a book. He had them stand on a desk to show them the power of taking a different perspective. Um, he had the march around the quad to show the how easily we fall in step and the dangers of conformity. Everything he did was a piece of experience design. And that's what makes a difference. You know, that's what transforms people. And the whole time, the conventional education system was sort of looking down at him suspiciously. And yeah, we're going to have to fight that battle. A big part of uh, how people learn is a critique of education. It's a monstrous system. It's the greatest systemic torture Humanity has ever conceived of, and, and we make money out of it. is the most incredible thing. If you said about any other creature that we're going to take them for a decade, let's say, of their lives, strap them into a seat, prevent them from talking and interacting with any other creature, if we if we said that we were going to do this to dogs, people would say it was utterly inhumane. You know, it's the most bizarre, ridiculous thing. Um, it's just a it's, it's a strange, damaging ritual. Every single person who goes through it. Is deeply damaged you know um it's the reason why people experience midlife crises because they've 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 been brought up to to do what they're told you know, sit still shut up do what you're told pass the test pass the test hit the deadline hit the deadline what well, what what am i doing now you know, what, what what was my life about it's just incredible that it's been allowed to to go on as long as it has really um but but then it hasn't really been around that long i suppose kind of a few hundred years if you look at you know the traditional educational system. So I think the but in case it's starting to sound a bit you know philosophical, the problem is that we have translated that model into our businesses. You know we could be there to help people. We could be there to help people enjoy their time in an organization. We could be there to make it easier to do a job. We could be there to provide transformative experiences. But instead, we're not. We've transplanted a system where. We chase around the organisation. We come up with a bunch of content, and then we obliterate people with it. You know, we force them to sit down and shut up and listen to it. Maybe pass a test at the end. And so, the major problem we face, you know, within L and D, within corporate L and D, is education. Is the expectation that that's what we're there to do? I'll give you one small example. We we all sort of intuitively, or we often intuitively, have this feeling that leaders should play a much bigger role in people's growth. Why don't they? I can tell you why they don't. Because they think that learning is education. When somebody says you should be involved in your team's learning, they think, oh, what, like standing up, you know, writing on a board. I don't, I don't do that. That's for the, the HR team to do. So education is a massive stumbling block for learning. It, it prevents us in lots of contexts from doing learning. In a school context, kids are escaping education by using things like TikTok, where they can learn voraciously about the stuff that they care about, about what's cool, about what's funny, about what's trendy. And teachers hate this. Can you imagine? I, I I watch TikToks where teachers complain about how unruly kids are becoming because they won't sit down, shut up, and do as they're told. So yeah, I mean, it, it will all crumble, I guess, quite fast, hopefully, at my life.
1: I heard this great quote once by a senior manager, and he said, we don't create innovations, they escape, (laughs) they escape the system that we've developed inside the organization. And I often think about that, about the poor kid who is the brilliantly different thinker, but manages to navigate the system and get an escape and redefine what work might mean for them in the future, because. In organizations where everybody's organizations are crying out for innovation and new thinking, fresh thinking, diverse perspectives, neurodiversity, etc. Yes, everything up to that point has been trying to crush those people or make them conform. And is it any wonder then why we have problems in organizations with innovation or in societies or in civilizations themselves later on because of that exact thing?
0: I used to joke when I was in consulting that we hire school prefects and I used to go around and when I'd find a particularly high-performing consultant say, were you a school prefect? And odds are they were. And we liked to hire them because they get good grades. Did the grades matter? No. We would hire somebody with a 2-1 in art history or first in art history, right? And none of that learning mattered. So why were we hiring? We were hiring them because they would do what they were told because they would fret like hell over the deadlines because they would work through the night to make sure those targets were met, right? We love the the school prefects. So that that's the the old critique of education. It's a Victorian model designed to churn out kind of obedient people. And yeah, you know, it's they're the worst people, you know, to innovate. Rory Sutherland, you know, if you've ever listened says something similar about, you know, how organizations are struggling because they're just not, not hiring. They're hiring the people who are good at school and school is designed to engineer people who will do as they're told. And you know, those aren't going to be your free thinkers. Those aren't going to be your innovators. Probably you don't want a whole organization of free thinkers, right? Probably want a mix, but yeah, I agree with that analysis.
1: I'd like to leave it with a a message of hope, I suppose.
0: Well, it's an interesting thing. The philosophy is I think quite widely shared. and and reasonably well-loved. You know, we go to conferences and talk to like-minded people. Where people are struggling is when that philosophy meets the kind of practicality. You know, they go back into their businesses and the reality is that a lot of their clients internally just think they're educators. They expect to hand them the book or the learning topics and for them to go off and build a course. And so if you want to change things, you have to show that you can do something different. And so I think those people who want to make progress, and, and I've been one of them, but there are others, you have to demonstrate that there's an alternative to that. And I think that's starting to happen. You know, there are people who are departing from the educational script um, and there are practical steps. You know, I'm not here to plug my approach, but it's open source. So, you know, it, this, it, it's a simple step-by-step approach, 5DI. Um, the, the book helps um, and there are examples which I share and have shared over the years of look here's how you could do things differently and and they win awards sometimes and people sit up and think oh yeah wow you know we could we could ditch the the chalk and talk the sage on the stage and um so i think partly it's courage um and i found that every time i coach or support somebody or an organization to do things differently they will say bloody hell that was that was tough work that was hard work you know and there's I suppose people have to be prepared for that. You can stay at home or you can climb to the top of the mountain. It's your choice ultimately. But but you should make that consciously. You should know that if if you're gonna climb to the top of the mountain, you're gonna be cold, you're gonna feel alone, you know, you're gonna wish you weren't trying to do it halfway up, you know. But if you stay at home, you should also know that, that that's the decision you take.
1: Let's share As a final message, and again, just to whet people's appetite for the book and indeed your work, the 5DI approach, maybe we'll share that as a final message
0: today. Sure. Thank you. Um, So one of the kind of the implications, practical implications of the effective context model is, as I said, you can't really um, design for people unless you understand their needs because it's their motivations fundamentally that are driving their learning. Typically, by the way, those motivations come from the job they're doing. A person's learning pathway isn't some crappy thing that HR have dreamed up, it's the job. That's why they're, they're struggling with stuff. So the challenges are, are, are already there. So what is a 5 gi Define, discover, design, develop, deploy, and iterate. And actually some of that's familiar. The first thing you do when somebody approaches you in the business and says, we need a course, is you stop them and you say, wait, hold, hold on. Before we start building it, can we just talk about, because we want to spend the organization's money well, right? Can we talk about what outcomes, what would you see people doing differently? What would they be thinking or feeling differently um, if this program were a success? And your stakeholders would say, wow, we've never been asked that before. Normally they just say, what topics go in the course? I don't know. Might like people to feel a bit more engaged, perform better, sell more stuff. And at least then you've got a good starting point. You can say, okay, so if you wanted this outcome, how do we best go about achieving that rather than just popping content in the course? And the next stage, the radical stage, you say, well, why don't we go and talk to some of these people, find out what's, what's holding them back? Wouldn't that be a good idea? Some people call that design thinking, the idea that you'd actually involve your customers in the, the design of a solution. So that's what you do. You get focus groups together and you say, what tasks and concerns do you have? You don't ask them, what do you want in a course? That's a crazy question. You just say, what are you struggling with in this area as a new leader, as a new starter? And what do you really care about? What are your worries? What are the things that keep you awake at night? And then the third stage, design. You get together in a room, you list all these things out on the left-hand side of a table and you say, what resources can we build and what experiences can we build? So somebody might say, well, as a new starter, a lot of people feel really unsupported. You know, they don't know where to go um, and they don't know who to ask for help. And you might say, well, one experience would be to design a buddy or an AI buddy and one resource might be a checklist or a list of useful websites and then you complete that table line by line and then you've got all of the building blocks for your design. They don't design the program, you do, L&D, so you take all the building blocks away and say, right, how are we going to sequence those into a user journey, into uh, an experience for people? And you do, you put all of the, the right experiences in place, you put the resources underneath it, you make them accessible and that's the develop bit and then you deploy it. And you learn something from it and you iterate it sort of sounds like common sense but for organizations who've tried to do it and there are many now many lots of big organizations big pharma big banks you know all kinds then it's actually quite a transformation because people are so used to the educational transaction which has become so easy to do it's like you know here's some content put it in a course and there are vendors who will sell you a tool that will automate it and ai bots will do it and it will still be crap because it's not learning. It's
1: not but it'll be done, man. It'll be done. Tick.
0: Task driven. Yeah. Yeah. Terrible. St- Just a one last story. I did is uh, terrible. I joined a huge organization. I'm not going to name it. And the, the team said, oh, we, you know, we, we've got this pathway creation tool. It's amazing. And basically what happens is when a client in the business comes to us and says, we need some, uh, a learning solution for this group of people. You say, well, we just drag and drop all of the LinkedIn modules into the pathway and bingo. Hey, you've got got a solution, you've got a learning pathway. And it's like, wow, sounds amazing. Can I have a look at the usage? Nobody's using it. (laughs) So can we shut it down, please? So you create a kind of cottage industry of creating, it's solutionary, of creating stuff that nobody was using. And I think there's just, there's a lot of that because people don't know what else.
1: (laughs) Reminds me of like a baby making Lego with like loads of different things. It's like, oh, look at my. Farmyard animal, you're like, on. oh yeah. It's like this mutated, grotesque creature. <laughs> Nobody plays with it. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Nick, absolute pleasure talking to you, man. And for people who want to win awards and work with you, where
0: can they find you? Oh, everywhere. I'm a nuisance. I'm a public nuisance. <laughs> I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn blabbing on about something provocative every day. I'm on TikTok now. Talking about all kinds of wild and wonderful things. Not much on Instagram, honestly. I'm just, I haven't really found my niche on Instagram, but yeah, there's that. And then there's the book, you know, that, that people can buy if they're interested. And what else? I've tried to basically I've tried to record chapters of it so people don't have to pay for the book. So I think there's the first three chapters uh, uh, on Vimeo somewhere. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm all all over. People would be struggling to avoid me. That would be the big <laughs> question.
1: Man, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, author of "How People Learn," Nick and jones Thank you for joining us. Thank you.
0: Inside Learning is brought to you by the Learnovate Centre in Trinity College Dublin. Learnovate is funded by Enterprise Ireland and IDA Ireland. Visit org to find out more about our research on the science of learning and the future of work.